Hi, I'm Chris Steierwald, and this is The Hangover, a limited-run podcast from the Dispatch and Dispatch Media that aims to figure out how Republicans took the shortest trip for a party in nearly 70 years, from total control in Washington to absolute minority. The GOP doesn't seem very interested in understanding why, so we'll have to do it for them. How did the surprise success of 2016 give way to defeat, an effort to overturn the election, and the siege of the U.S. Capitol? And what comes next? The founders were more concerned about the state interfering in the church than the church interfering in the state. And with good reason. Using religion to advance political goals can be dreadfully effective and always corrosive to the spiritual health of the religious body. We all know the story of how conservative Christians stormed the battlements of the Republican establishment starting in the 1980s and changed the GOP. What we tend to think less about is how Republican political ambitions have changed the evangelical movement. As I thought about that more and more, I realized how close this topic was to my own heart. I hope you'll forgive me, but the discussion here is less about the future of the Republican Party and more about the future of the church in a bitterly divided America. That's why we're going to be joined by David Glade. He's the rector at Christ the King Anglican Church in Alexandria, Virginia. He got his divinity degree from the Trinity School for Ministry and is completing his doctorate now. More impressively, he is the father of six lovely, well-behaved children. He's also my pastor. If you want an example of how to keep the faith when politics crowds in from every angle, David is one to watch. David, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Now, I I will state for the record that I do not believe that this will stand in place of regular worship. I'm not going to count this toward my credit of coming to hearing you teach and worshiping in person. I want you to know. Sure. Okay. Uh, what's an Anglican and why isn't an Anglican an Episcopalian? Oh, that's a nice softball question there, Chris. Uh, <laughs> so an Anglican is, uh, a, historically, the Church of England is a church that came out of the Reformation. So 1517, Martin Luther, uh, the Anglican Church was a part of that movement. You, you're leaving uh, out the Henry VIII part, which I, well, I get. Yeah, the, yeah. the Henry VIII is a little <laughs> subtext, but there's more to it than the Henry VIII quite, and yes, as many, many quite wives. So, quite so, yeah, quite yeah. so, quite uh, so. Uh, our, the, Thomas Cramner was the architect of our prayer book, and that became a real uh, driving force for Anglican worship. And uh, obviously when uh, Anglicanism spread over to the New World, uh, and there was this little... A controversy in 1776. No one really wanted to be called Anglicans anymore. So they took the name Episcopalian, which refers to the system of governance. So the Greek word Episcopal. Episcopi is so to, fair to say it is similar for people who are Roman Catholic. There's, there's a similarity. It's not the same, but there's a similarity. There isn't a pope, but there are bishops and there are archbishops yep. and there are yep. those things. Okay. Yeah. So episcopacy means bishops, right? So that's what we have. We have a system of governance that includes bishops. Uh, and to your question of why are we called Anglicans or why are we now called Anglicans and not Episcopalians? Well, I think it was 2007. There was a parting of ways in the Episcopal church went one direction and a group of uh, Anglicans or group of people went another direction. I was a part of that group that went in another direction and uh, we've reverted to calling ourselves Anglicanism. So, And this was, and I'm, this is not the purpose of the podcast, but I think for people's context and to add to your uh, credibility on the subject, it's fair. So this, this is something that, that 
made national news. It came out of Virginia, where your church is and where you you you're, you were at the Falls Church, that is which correct. is a big Anglican church. Uh, you you have what to me is a pretty big church, but not big by by mega church standards, right? Sure, that's right. Your church. How many congregants at your church? Our church. Well, pre pre COVID, I had about three hundred souls on Sunday. Post COVID, who knows? Um, right. Um, yeah, Sometimes so, we're out in the yard listening on the radio. Exactly. Yeah. So okay. t- t- TBD of what will happen post COVID, but yeah, around 300 souls, uh, uh, pre. And you, you were there at the schism and That's what right. was, what was the cause of the schism? Yeah, it basically boils down to biblical authority, uh, um, particular issue of anthropology, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, but it really kind of rooted back to uh, the authority of the scriptures and the life of the church. Uh, that would be certainly so my, gay, my assessment. Gay, gay marriage was part of this story. It was. It was sort of the, uh, I could describe it as a probably the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, and uh, yeah, so between that. small, so I, I, I'm not trying to belabor this, but between small o, o Orthodox, the the view of small O Orthodox Anglican uh, participants in the Anglican Communion in Virginia, there the, the, there was a parting of the ways with the Episcopal Church in the United States uh, in uh, about a decade ago, well more than a decade ago now. Uh, and it was, it was tumultuous. It made national news. There was all this, whatever. Um, so that's what it is. So that's the, why, uh, you, why I am even now a self-identified Anglican, though I do need to take the, the proper rights. Right. Uh, yeah, I got yeah. to get it in the book. Uh-huh. Uh, but I tell, I, I, I self-identify if for, for political pollster terms, I self-identify, there you go. uh, but so that doesn't have much to do with the daily life of your church. It doesn't have really anything to do with the daily life of your church. It's the cause for why there are Anglicans and why there are Episcopalians. Uh, and this is something now that's national and international. And there's this thing that's working its way through. Okay. That's that. What is an evangelical? Ooh, great question. Yeah. Uh, an evangelical is a really old term. An evangelical, just by the basic definition, is... Uh, someone who prioritizes the good news. The word evangelical is, that's what it means, good news, a good messenger. And uh, an evangelical has been traditionally someone who has prioritized a few things, uh, the authority of scriptures, uh, the importance of of a uh, personal relationship with the Lord. Uh, There are probably a few more a few more qualities and characteristics about an evangelical, but I'd put those as two really preeminent one, uh, the authority of the Bible and a personal relationship with Christ. Are you, and, and so evangelizing to bring people, to share the good news with people, to evangelize and, and that, um, are you one? Absolutely. Yeah. I would describe myself as an, an evangelical in the Anglican tradition. Yeah. Okay. So you're part of a, now, would we consider this a mainline denomination? Boy, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, See, a, a, a little less mainline than, uh, yeah, in the past. It's like you can take Interstate 81 or you can take the Blue Ridge Parkway. This yeah, is we're the Blue, Blue Ridge Parkway. Yeah, we're more, yeah. more Blue Ridge Parkway. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. okay. So 
you're a self-described evangelical. Now, I don't know how I would have answered that. I think I probably would have said yes to that question uh, 10 years ago um, because I thought of it in uh, ecclesiastical, I thought of it in spiritual terms that the, the, the big idea here was that you have something good and you want to share it. Um, but also what was happening in my professional life at that time was the word evangelical came to stand in for some other terms. So when we were boys, there was a term that was in common use that was born again. And Jimmy Carter was born again. Was Ronald Reagan born again? Well, he's going to have to think about it, but he's he's interested, but maybe not that interested, but he definitely likes praying, but yikes. So so there were uh, charismatic, there were born agains, there were all of these things. What happened in American Christianity in the 1980s? All of this stuff, just sketch a little bit here about the born agains, the Southern Baptists, the rise of uh, non-denominational churches and all that stuff. Just give us a little a, a little taste. Well, that's a big question. I, I think in general terms, I would just say that the evangelical became just really, really capacious, like, and a lot of things started falling under that. And, uh, you know, some related to the church, like denominations, like uh, threads within denominations. So an Anglican, an evangelical Anglican, an evangelical, evangelical Catholic. Um, and also, on a, I think that's helpful. Uh, unhelpfully, it became just associated with a cultural so you didn't need to go to the uh, church or really believe in the bible or know the lord in order to be evangelical as long as you did you know had basically conservative beliefs and would help if you were white and male and well don't steal my material i got you got to save something that's that's <laughs> right that's the, so that's the it got co-opted you're right <laughs> okay so the, the, the term got co-opted a little uh not a little bit a lot of bit so I'm 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 going to lead the witness and say, in the 1970s and 80s, after mainline denominations started to lose momentum, coming in in their place were the Jesus movement out of California, uh, the non-denominational Baptist, Qua Baptist, uh, something out of the South, right, out of the Baptist tradition. You have a lot of, and you, within the Baptist tradition, people like Jerry Falwell and others. Uh, but certainly the the fruit of Billy Graham's work uh, as this this massive evangelistic force, he was coming out of sort of the Calvinistic tradition, North Carolina, my hillbilly people. Uh, he was coming out of that tradition. But TV, uh, I remember my grandmother watched uh, Robert Schuller's Crystal Cathedral uh, every Saturday uh, and and heard, if not the good news, the happy news uh, and all of that stuff. So there was, in the time that you were a young man and a kid, there was a big upheaval going on in, in American and in Christian religious practice in this country, right? Yeah, I think so. Yep. And a big part of that was cultural. Is that also fair? Yeah, I'd say, you know, you're probably a little bit more versed in this than me. Um, I, you know, I, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, so there was, I mean, when, when was a high water mark of church attendance in America? I, I don't, I'm not quite sure. Probably well, 70s, not, 80s. 
Yeah, not now. Not uh, now. W- we just saw the latest Gallup numbers that show not, not that. Not encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. You were going to say something. So, yeah, there was definitely a, a tide. I grew up, I'm a, I'm 47 now, so I grew up in the 80s. And uh, I guess, uh, actually, my bishop uh, would say, you know, when back in the 80s, everyone had a church they went to, even if they didn't go to church. In other words, you know, you were Methodist. You, you may not go to a Methodist church. Uh, but you were, you know, you self-identified, right? Uh, and that's just not the case anymore. People are, you know, the rise of the famous rise of the nuns. Uh, so that cultural tide has definitely shifted. Um, and to the question about evangelicals, how did that fit? Again, I just think it was a very broad category that a lot of people found a way in. And um, I guess you asked the question initially, am I an evangelical? Yes, but... I'd like to define the term uh, before right. you. Um, well, and and I think I think that's just the struggle here. So the struggle is you have this m- period in the '80s and '90s uh, where the evangelical label it comes to include a lot of stuff that is very different, right? So so I don't know whether Joel Osteen considers himself an evangelical, but some people probably do. I would think so. Uh, yeah. And, uh, but at the same time, you have churches that are very traditional, that are high church, that are all those things, including some Anglican churches, uh, that, that, that would have considered themselves evangelical. So that was all fine. It didn't mean anything until people like me got involved. And the problem was pollsters, demographers, and political analysts needed a term to describe conservative Christians, right? And the born again thing didn't work out because that got un- misunderstood. It, it became so misunderstood and often satirized, right? Oh, you're born again. And what, what's the verse that born again comes from? It's John 3.16. Well, uh, but, there, but there's one that you'll be born unless again. A man, that, yeah, unless yeah. a man is born again. Um, but it comes from that idea of. The new birth in Christ. Right. So, but but it but it got it took on some negative cultural connotations, and so so we started using evangelical, and it was fine because it caught mega churches in New Hampshire, it caught Jesus people in California, it caught ba- non Baptist Baptists, uh, Baptist not by name in the Deep South, uh, it caught them all, and it, it gave us what we were looking for, but we kind of ruined it because the more we talked about it. Right. And people became aware of the significance of the term. And I've talked to you about this before. In 2016, we looked at the results of the South Carolina primary, and it was incontrovertible that Donald Trump had carried evangelicals in South Carolina. And then we cross referenced it, though, with church attendance. And there was low to no correlation between people describing themselves as evangelical and attending church. And that's when I knew, and it was the day of and the day after the South Carolina primary, I knew that we political people had created a terrible, <laughs> had created a terrible problem. Uh, so talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, so you said, what is an uh, evangelical? I think you, we've been referenced a couple, uh, you know, the, the authority of the, of the scriptures would be one. A personal relationship with Christ would be another. Uh, a commitment to a priority of sharing the good news. A third. The fourth it would be a commitment to the local church. And so when you have people described as evangelicals but lacking what I would consider a really 
fundamental quality of evangel it, it gets it, it's a term that just sort of loses its impact the question i guess the question that i've thought about is so uh, what do we what's the next phrase is there some new because we used to be fundamentalists right and the fundamentalist oh, yeah. has a yeah that had a, that had even more a negative connotation so evangelicals well, a, yeah go ahead no you go ahead uh evangelicals are a little bit more sophisticated right so um than a fundamentals so i just don't know what the, is there a next term out there that's just waiting waiting to be hatched or um yeah i i don't know if it's a redeemable term evangelical it's a good no one. pun intended right exactly uh it's such a it, i hate to see it go because it's so important um it's such a good word and it can capture so much of what i believe to be true um but is it is it uh has it lost its usefulness i, I i'm not sure um at what point if ever did you notice more did you notice politics coming into your sphere more has it been consistent over the course of your career in the, as a as a clergyman or do you feel that things have changed in in the past decade i think i do feel like there is a change in that i i i have i try to avoid politics from the pulpit um period i I think what has changed is that more things have become political um so it's it's i was talking to a friend who said and i said i'm going to home depot so you can't go to home depot because they are support or they, they support some president or something they, they, they give to some cause and so you can't sh- shop where you shop is now a political statement mm-hmm. um and because everything has become more political it's hard to say anything other than well jesus was a nice guy and you should be a nice person too Any, anything more than that is going to be could be construed as political um you know for instance you know some of the basic tenets of you know christian conduct um which you know the sanctity of life from cradle to grave that's is a biblical truth it's it is not just recently it is for a while now been a political matter as well stewardship of the environment um a biblical truth and now a political environment as well or a political uh issue as well so i do feel like there's been more of a i just feel like everything is more politicized now everything kind of so yeah well so if i look through american history every pretty much every social and political movement either found its beginning in the church or had the church riding shotgun with it, right? So the abolition of slavery for openers, uh, but and even before that, uh, in the first and second great awakenings, with the very founding Absolutely. of the country Absolutely. and everything after that, the church was part and parcel, or and very often the motivating part of what's going on. But if we just take it from the abolition of slavery uh, into women's suffrage, into prohibition, into civil rights, 
uh, into and, and then most recently on questions of abortion and on uh, gay rights and gay marriage, uh, all of those things, the church has been a driving force. Am I wrong to think that we have changed our understanding now? Uh, was it that the church was too activist before and is now sidelined? Is it that it is too activist now? What? How do you perceive the relationship of the American church with public life now as compared to the past? Gosh, I, that's a big question, Chris. I, um, I do agree with your assessment of the past. Great Awakening, a driving force for the revolution. Um, abolition of slavery, uh, William Wilberforce, uh, to quote one of, uh, to cite one of the, the, an Anglican who was very uh, significant in that movement. Um, so absolutely, in the past, yes. What, what is relationship now? I almost get the sense that the church is kind of in the way. Um, How so? Expound on that. What do you mean by in the way? What's in the way of progress or in the way of what? Um, I mean, you look at Martin Luther King, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, and, you know, the, his... Someone taught him in Sunday school about Moses and about the promised lad. And so when he, when he delivered his great speeches, I mean, he was just steeped in the Bible because he was a part of a church and they gave it sort of power or gave it a different feel, right? It gave his, um, 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 you know, a little gentler maybe, um, I just don't sense that now. Um, is it that is that is it that people are not looking to the church anymore? Is no. it maybe just as simple as that? I think probably that's probably you know maybe the church had its shot, didn't do very, didn't do a great job. So now we're going to take it on our own. Uh, I think would be uh, a, a possible a reason. Um, many have observed that the there is a Pascal called it a God shaped void. Uh, there's a, um, I forget which, uh, philosopher ref uh, referred to mankind as homo religios, uh, uh, that we are, what makes us human is our craving for the divine. What makes us human is, uh, the, the hole in the soul that, that we have to try to fill up with something else. And very often being humans, we try to fill it up with all the wrong stuff, uh, before we try to fill it up with the right stuff. Um, it seems now that when I look at what is passing for religion and what is passing for faith, very often among these nuns and other things, so you've got populism, so you have the, the will of the people, right? Uh, the, 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 the populace as God, you have, uh, wokeism as God, you have this sort of, uh, intersectional cultural mandate uh, as a new religion. It seems like there's a lot of new religions out there, but it doesn't seem like religion, <laughs> that religion is, is, right, doing yeah. the, is doing the do. Is That's that right. right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think the thing about politics is it, it, it makes great religion. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It gives you a great place to belong. It gives you a cause to fight for. It gives you enemies to fight against. The problem is you take religion out of it, it just gets, it doesn't get better. It just, it just gets it gets more visceral, more angry. So what do we say to evangelical, and I'm putting an a asterisk by it to acknowledge that this is a freighted term and a complicated term, but what do we say to an evangelical uh, in America today who says, well, look, 
Uh, we tried all that lovey-dovey jazz. We tried all that stuff, but we're getting killed out here. They're making us bake cakes for gay weddings. Uh, our religious freedoms are being trampled. Uh, we're being ostracized. They're not letting us meet for church. Uh, we are victims now, right? Now we have, you know, as Christians have gone from the dominant culture in the United States uh, to one of many, uh, and that Christians are losing. And that somebody, and when you listen to somebody like uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. or um, uh, Billy Graham's son, uh, they are putting on the breastplate, right? They are ready to fight. They want to onward Christian soldiers this thing into a culture war against what they perceive as a, a insatiable appetite on the American left to to un, to root out Christian the the Christian heritage of the country, and they say they're tired of losing, and that a guy like Donald Trump, he's not so great. Maybe maybe he maybe he uh, isn't uh, Christian. Maybe he is not an observant Christian in the way that we have traditionally understood that term. But he is a fierce warrior on the on on the cause of these things. What do you say to those people? I think I'd say two things. I'd say. Well, for first, I would say, I think we sh we should be pretty cautious about claiming martyrdom. Obviously, that's a part of the church history. Um, and I, I just personally don't think that having to wear masks in church or having to spread my congregation out six feet to adhere to the general principles that every other venue is adhering to in Virginia counts as martyrdom. So I think there, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of the, the call of, you know, we're being persecuted. I, I just, I've not seen it. I think the traditional understanding of, you know, uh, every follower of Christ is to obey the law of the land until you're for forbidden to do something that the gospel commands or commanded to do something the gospel forbids. And I, I just have not encountered that. I, I don't know when I will. I hope when I, if I do, I hope I won't encounter that. I hope if I do, I'll take the stand of uh, faithfulness to uh, my faith. Um, it, does, it does seem that we're a little quick to claim persecution. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, and I'm aware of uh, I'm aware of some of the out the, the cases of people who want to don't want to do certain things and they're compelled to. So I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm not saying it won't happen. I'm just saying we should not claim to be persecuted until until that happens. And I guess a th second thing would just be a little clarity on definitions. Like, are we being persecuted? Or are we being inconvenienced? I, we're being inconvenienced. Like the fact that there are no sports on Sunday is not a persecution. It's an inconvenience and a prioritization. Um, uh, you know, what, what if taxes, what, what if, uh, what, what if God forbid churches lose their stack tax exempt status? That's not persecution. That's an inconvenience. That's, that's a privilege that I have. And if they're taken away, that doesn't mean I'm being persecuted. Uh, I don't want that to happen. I hope it doesn't. But <laughs> yeah, if the, <laughs> you know. if, if the Treasury Department is listening, he would like to make clear that we'd like right, to maintain that, that's the That's not good. <laughs> uh, but again, persecution, e, 
you know, that's probably a fairly rare invention that, you know, you get a tax write-off for giving to the church, right? But if, but if, but if I perceive myself as persecuted, right? If I believe, so, you know, you have helped me a lot in thinking about the value of the, the, what's Bonhoeffer's line, is it the price of discipleship or the cost of discipleship? The cost of discipleship, yeah. And you've taught on this before, and I have really appreciated, and you talked about how when you live in a country or a, a culture where it's good and helpful to be a Christian, right? As it was in the United States, until pretty recently, right? Right. You not only were helped by being a member of a church, it was pretty much necessary. There were a lot, there were a lot of Episcopalians listed in the congressional directory that had not dark, had not darkened the door of an Episcopal church or any church for a long time in their lives. Right. Yep. Yep. Uh, married and buried. And maybe that is uh, about it. Um, so, but it was a necessary thing to be a, con- a professing, if not confessing Christian, um, and that as that changes and we move into this pluralistic society, it's going to cause some dissonance for people who are from the old time. Is that a, is that a fair statement? Absolutely. And it's going to require, like, I think some sifting. I mean, if church is nothing more than a, if, if. If faith and church and religion are not personal and they're just places of belonging and all of a sudden there are other places to belong and to get the same thing that you would get in church, then, you know, that church is going to fall by the wayside. Um, um, so absolutely dissonance, I think, is, uh, is a fair, fair description. Um, and when people get upset, political leaders do want to step in and say, I see that you're upset and I want to offer you something. And I think that's what you were, that you were talking about, right? Yeah. But persecution, eee, I just, I mean, there's too many, too many martyrs out there who have actually been persecuted for us to say that, to take that mantle on, for me to take that mantle on quite yet. Um, how did you perceive uh, the rise of Donald Trump, how did you perceive changes within the Republican Party, if you perceive them at all? Did you, were you, I mean, your congregation, you can't avoid it. Where your church is and who goes to your church, you can't, you can't entirely ignore the changes in the political world. How did you perceive the changes that were taking place inside the Republican Party? I, I, I this may be a, a, this may cause your listeners, I, I, I'm not very politically engaged. No, I, I know. Cast, I love it. That's why I'm at your church, brother. <laughs> I, I, I cast my votes. I try to stay informed. But, it, um, you know, we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago. That's a great thing about living in a democratic republic. I feel like my duty is to cast my vote every two years and otherwise let the people I vote for or people I didn't vote for, but the people voted for do their job. And so I, I'm trying not to be, I'm just not, okay. not naturally. Well, let's, let's put it in the, let's, let's personify it. When Donald Trump won the Republican nomination when Donald Trump became president. What did you think? How did you perceive that? I, I was, I was surprised. Um, I, I, you know, I felt like, yeah, I was just, I was very, I was just very surprised. Um, you were surprised that people would vote for him or you were surprised at his success or you, what? I'm what surprised that enough people, enough people voted for him. Um, I just, I, I, would, I was, did not anticipate it. I don't think many people did. Uh, and there, there, I, I don't know the answer to, I genuinely don't know the answer to this over the course of the past five or six years, uh, has Trump or populism or all that stuff 
presented uh, obstacles for you in your work? Have you found that it was a cause of division? Have you found that it was a cause of hurt feelings or were there ruptures or whatever? Um, I, it's, I, I think, uh, what I have perceived again is that sort of the politicization of everything where, um, you know, where you shop becomes a, a, a statement of, you know, the comment on the stewardship of environment is a political statement. So I, I, I think that would be the, the only impact that I would, uh, okay. really, really point to. Uh, when you, where were you on January 6th? I'm not suggesting uh, you were attacking the Capitol. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's no, not no. The FBI. Uh, yeah. I was on the, uh, I was, I was in my office sitting and watching it. Yeah. How did you perceive those events as they unfolded? Yeah. Tragic. I'd think tragic would be the best word I can describe. Talk a little bit about what you, how you felt, what you saw and what you thought about afterward. It just seemed like a mob. Um, it just seemed, it just, it, it just seemed like a bunch of unhappy, out of control people acting poorly. Um, and what did I did, what we did after, you know, there's a couple of times in my ministry, in my pastoral career, when I know what I'm supposed to do. And that was one of the times. And we gathered for worship. And again, I don't know the answer. Uh, I, I don't feel competent to weigh in on, I mean, I certainly feel like they were, they were in the wrong, but that's all I'm going to say about what their motivation was, or, you know, um, I, I do know that when we encountered these tumultuous moments in our nation, and there have been a number of tumultuous moments, I feel like it's my job to tell my congregation, look. You know, what, what do Christians do in moments like these? Uh, we, we turn to the Lord. We, we gather for worship. The, the intention was to gather around the Lord's table in Eucharist. Of course, uh, there was a, a curfew, so we unfortunately did a Zoom meeting. I guess that's how my approach has been. Like, I, I, there's a lot that I don't know. There's a lot of, I, I was baffled, confused, saddened. Um, you know, that's not a, that's not an unfamiliar response to uh, in the Bible, and it seems like that at the best, the people in the Bible, when they're baffled, confused, saddened, they, they gather for worship. One of the things that hurt my heart that day were seeing the 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 Jesus flags flying amid a angry mob of attackers. And of course, I thought I thought a lot about I, I was I was given cause to think a lot about that uh, on uh, Palm Sunday and in the subsequent week. Uh, <laughs> uh, those people are not the first people to misunderstand the role of Jesus in public life. Right there. Uh, there is a it, it, there is a and I'm going to get out of my depth real quick on this, but it seems to me like uh, there is always a profound misunderstanding Absolutely. About what Jesus's role is and what the role of, of the church is in public life, because people want it to be a political force. People want it to be those things. And I always just think about Augustine and like, that's not for you. <laughs> that, you can be there, you can visit, but you live in a different city and your goal and your goals are elsewhere. That's right. And it's, you know, 
not to make this into a Bible study, but the, the, I mean, the one of the first first chapter of the book of Acts, I think the disciples say, well, they've gone through the resurrection, gone through everything, and the, the disciples say, so now, now are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? It's like, I'm sure the Lord must have been thinking, wait, guys. You know, God, we just went over we, this. We just went over this. <laughs> I guess my point is, I guess it's, it's a little helpful as we think about the complexity between, it's always been complex. Like, and there's always been mistakes. And boy, if we think we're any better, those disciples were blowing it from day one. And they continue to blow it. Um, yeah, and, and I, certainly you would point to the Christian imagery on uh, a riot storming the Capitol as yet another occasion of, you know, Give us Barabbas. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe sincere followers of the Lord doing something very wrong, you know, and it's been done before. So how do you and how do we as a nation, believers and non-believers, how do we proceed from here? Um, and I want to start with this question as we move into the, the, the closing moments here. Are you, you know, Tim Keller wrote very movingly and effectively by my way of thinking in 2017 uh, in a piece where he talked to, he, he asked the question openly, can the evangelical movement in America survive its uh, relationship with Donald Trump? Uh, and is there a concern for you that the church, the small O Orthodox church, the church of, you know, in, uh, intentionality, um, is is this uh, this relationship with the Republican Party uh, real? Uh, is it is it more reality or perception? And is it causing harm to either or both? It, so, ask your question one more one, one more time, please. Well, the first the, the first part we take let's we'll take it. Well, you know how you eat an elephant one bite at a time. So the uh, the first bite is uh, is there. A is the perceived relationship between, and we're going to use asterisks evangelicals, uh, so as described to to mean you and me too, uh, is the relationship between evangelicals and the Republican Party uh, real? And if it is so, uh, what are the consequences of that relationship for both? I think the, the the relationship is real. I think the 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 term has become again so. Uh, so broad as to be um, just not very helpful. Uh, yeah, there is a connection uh, between Republican Party and the evangelical church. I, I, um, and I can tell you that on the political side of things, that the consequences have been, to a degree, you had the you had the push in of the moral majority in the 80s and you had the engagement you had Pat Robertson you had all these other folks that said we're tired of being overlooked we're tired of being taken for granted and a lot of this had to do with migration regional and demographic migration from democrat to republican that you had southern states that were becoming so, so the southern united states it's not new uh, that the southern U.S. is uh, has tended to be more observant, certainly more Protestant uh, than than the rest of the country. So a good place to find uh, observant uh, uh, Protestants has always been the southern United States. But you have the moral majority movement, which is aimed at from outside of the Republican Party 
at the Republican Party to change the Republican Party and to make it impossible for Republicans to be pro-choice and to get Republicans to oppose uh, legalizing gay marriage and all those other things. So it seems like you had a long project that was aimed at changing the center of gravity for the Republican Party. But now there's some sort of regulatory capture that has taken place where much like African-Americans have experienced with the Democratic Party, which is once your votes are taken for granted and once you're part of it, then you're sort of just along for the ride. And does that reflect what you've observed? That's a great way to. Yeah. And now that you say it, I think I think that's uh, that's accurate. Um, and then the and then the political leaders uh, are, are have too much uh, gas uh, to their foot's on the gas too much, uh, instead of outside in it's inside out. And as you know, I, you and I have never talked about this, but I know that there's a lot of people out there who have discussed the fact that the point of the first amendment is not to so much to protect the government from religion. It's to protect the religion from government that, the, that the, the anti-establishment clause is designed to keep politics out of the church, not so much the church out of politics. And it seems like maybe we've managed to engineer reverse engineer a switch on that polarity yeah i think that's accurate yeah um again to your your, your question about the connection between the, the politics or the republican party and um and the evangelical yeah i wiser minds and mine and uh, can see the way forward on that one i i, I do i do hope <laughs> It would be great if people who identified as evangelicals thought a little bit more about just what that entailed. Um, and it's, again, a little clarity on definition. I mentioned the clarity. Persecution, E. Let's be a little clear on our definition. Evangelical, if you are, great. <laughs> but that, 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 that's, that does not mean uh, the things that we are told it means it means it does it means again that we trust the bible that we love the lord that we trust him that we believe that the salvation he won is worth sharing so so if you were and last thing if you were you know some of your peers across the country are going to hear you today um what would you as somebody who leads a congregation that is in the beating heart of political America, right? Who have, you have as congregants, people who are in positions of authority, positions of influence, uh, and you're also part of a denomination that itself has been, you have in your career shot the rapids of the politics and church and culture wars and all of that stuff. You have been through it all. And the reason that I wanted you to be with us was because I think you have something good to offer. I don't think, uh, I, I wish all, I, I would encourage everybody up to COVID limits uh, to come to Christ the King and check it out. But I think you have something here to offer your fellow clergy members. What would you tell them about how to navigate these spaces? Because they're pretty tricky. So what would you tell them? If you're talking to somebody who's, you know, you do have, I would, I'm going to guess that you have a pretty conservative, our congregation, pretty conservative. Uh, but you could, but if you were in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, uh, or you were in uh, some parts of Orange County or Texas or West Virginia or Alabama, uh, it get pretty hot, right? <laughs> and so what do you, what would you tell them about what you've learned planting, growing, and leading a church in the space where you have? Great question. 
that is one I can uh, feel like I can answer. I would say, you know, there's this old saying, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Mm-hmm. Like the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the one main thing the churches do is call people together to worship. Um, the one thing that I have to offer, like I'm not a cultural commentator. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I can't anticipate the future. The one thing I can do is open the Bible and say, this is, this is what I think it means. And this is how I think it applies. In other words, like the church has a main thing that it offers and it's worship and it's uh, connection to Christ and an assurance of forgiveness. And yeah, there are social actions that should come from that, but mm, th- those are those are secondary things. And so I'd say keep the main thing the main thing. I'd say don't. I'd say don't. Don't shy away from any ethical matter. Like I, I think there are ethical matters that are really worth the church needs to speak out on from racism to stewardship to sanctity, like you name it. But there's a big difference between unpacking the ethical implications of scripture and making a political statement. And it seems to be a very simple line. Life is sacred is different from saying vote for that person. I want to tell my people one thing, but not the other. And so I think it's not that hard. (laughs) <laughs> you just can't. You, so I'd say focus on the eth- the ethics, but don't go into politics. And the third thing I think I would tell folks is to, there there are just other things to talk about other than politics. Like it, it's got its role; it has an important part. But boy, oh boy, it makes a heck of an idol. And I think that's. I think. Uh, I think a little more disinterestedness may not be a bad thing. A disinterestedness in politics. Like, we voted, they're going to do their job, and you can vote again in two years. So. Well, uh, seldom has this expression uh, been more aptly, uh, been more apt uh, from your lips to God's ears, David Glade. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Chris. Uh, we, th- we thank you for making time for us. And uh, I, I know that you will keep all this political stuff in your prayers because you always do. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Appreciate it.